Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to this moment where we desire to worship over the word of God. And we need your help. We need your help to still the tsunami of our souls. We need your help to rivet our attention on the main thing this morning, who is Jesus. Lord, we need your help as we open our Bibles to, uh, to see what's really here, and then the miracle, Lord, is, is to savor what's here. And I ask that you do that. I ask that you provide for us, first of all, the gift of illumination so that we can really see, we can handle our Bibles with uh, faithfulness, that we're faithful to your word, and so far as we are, that you would pick up this message. And it's, I'm well aware it's what you do with the words that leave my lips and hit the ears of my brothers and sisters here that really matters. So Holy Spirit, do your work. Plow up the soil of our hearts and put the seed of the word of God deep down into our hearts and may it produce a crop. We trust you for these things, Lord. We believe in the ministry of preaching. So come now and do this work, I ask, for Jesus' sake and the forward motion of the mission you've given us to be and make disciples of our great King. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I won't attempt to hide it. Um, I've got counseling on my mind these days. Perhaps that's because everywhere... I look, I see a vision for biblical counseling growing and stirring and thriving in this local church. For example, we have a handful of men and women that are currently meeting with counselees in a, in a weekly capa- counseling capacity relationship inside and outside this fellowship. We continue to see a group of men and women that we refer to as our counseling cohort that are actively studying and writing exams and pursuing certification through the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And in addition, our Counseling Center committee continues to meet and to labor together as they help us to think through all of the nuts and bolts that go into launching a counseling center. And as you might imagine, there are a lot of nuts and a lot of bolts Um, including this past week a a meeting with a Christian attorney from the cities who is assisting us in all things related to the law so that, number one, we're both in compliance with it, but then, number two, that we can exercise all of our legal rights, that we be aware of what our rights are as we launch this ministry. And furthermore, I reached a personal milestone this past Friday as I completed my final session of supervision, which is the last step in ACBC certification, so that hopefully not long from now we'll receive the official word that there's now three certified biblical counselors on staff. Pastor Aaron, our pastoral assistant, Kara Kaler, and myself. Um, All of this, of course, leading to a soft launch of the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling later this, this fall. Now, more on that and how you can be a part of this ministry as it sees the light of day uh, toward the end of this sermon. But suffice it to say right now, friends, these are, these are good days for the care and the cure of souls in our local church. As you may know, we're in a series currently uh, that is entitled Jesus is Better, a study of the book of Hebrews. And that's exactly where I'd like you to open your Bibles right now if you, if you would. 
The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seat in front of you, this morning's text begins on page 1001. Page 1001 in the red Bibles. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. Now, last week... At one point, I said that based upon the message of the book of Hebrews, we can be certain that Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than Muhammad, and then Jesus is better than mindfulness therapy. One of you asked me last week, why did I mention mindfulness therapy in particular? And my first response was, well, it began with the letter M, and I was hard up for an alliteration. Jesus is better than Moses, Muhammad, and mindfulness therapy, right? At the same time, it's true that not just any M word would have done there, right? I mean, it's true that Jesus is better than marshmallows and marigolds and Maserati sports cars, but I chose mindfulness therapy intentionally. Why? Well, not to seize on one particular counseling orientation uniquely as more troubling than any other, but perhaps maybe as an example of a very popular counseling orientation that I do believe competes with our attention as aggressively as any other. How many of you have heard of or are familiar with mindfulness therapy? Okay, yeah, more more than I imagined maybe. If you're involved in the public schools these days, you've certainly encountered it in the curriculum known as Mind Up. Mind Up is a school curriculum actually developed by the Hahn Foundation. And if you're familiar, maybe the name Hahn rings a bell, that belongs to Goldie Hahn, the actress and comedian. Uh, who rose to fame in Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, and she even earned an Oscar nomination for her role in Private Benjamin. At any rate, mindfulness has has roots that go back far further than than Goldie Hawn, uh, back into the religious traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism. It's a meditation practice mixed with elements of positive psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy. And mindfulness therapy, seeing as it's actually a composite of a number of other approaches to mental in emotional well-being, um, simply reminds us that secular psychology, when we speak of secular psychology, we really need to face the fact that there's no such thing. There is no secular psychology, but there are psychologies. There are hundreds of them. And then there are psychotherapies that take their cues from the psychologies. And some of the more popular include psychodynamic theory and therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, as I mentioned, humanistic and existential Therapy, and then there are all sorts of eclectic approaches, and, and mindfulness is, is one of them. Now, here's the point. Not that we should know all of those names or be able to define them. Here's the point. As we step onto the field of counseling in this culture, we enter an awfully crowded space. Issues of jurisdiction abound. And Why? Well, because if there's one thing that we as human beings can all agree on, it's that we've got problems. We're all clear on that. We have problems, and as a result, we've got trouble. And the million-dollar question is, who has the best answers, solutions, and help? That's the issue at the end of the day. Uh, To paraphrase Dr. Heath Lambert, we've got questions, problems, and trouble, And we want to know who's got the best answers, solutions, and help. Well, guess what, friends? This is precisely where the gospel shines. In Romans 1, 15 to 16, the Apostle Paul proclaims that I am eager 
to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Paul speaks of salvation in Romans 1.16, he means nothing less than the comprehensive rescue of our souls, both in this life and in the next. You see, what sets the Christian message apart is Christ himself. There are hundreds upon hundreds of counseling theories available and at our fingertips today, but what makes biblical counseling so utterly unique and thus in a category totally unto itself is that in biblical counseling, we don't counsel a theory. We counsel a person, a person prepared to stand in solidarity with sufferers and sinners. In this church, we don't counsel a theory. We counsel a person prepared to stand in solidarity with sufferers and sinners. An ancient prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, refers to the coming Messiah as the wonderful counselor. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 15 to 18, we're going to discover three reasons why he is such a wonderful counselor. We don't counsel the theory, we counsel a person prepared to stand in solidarity with sufferers and sinners. Three reasons why Jesus is such a wonderful counselor. Let's start here. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he offers us the solidarity of his subjection. Subjection. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he offers us the solidarity of his subjection. Would you look with me at Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, last week, moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2, we moved from exposition to application. You remember that? That is from ancient text to modern context. This week, as we continue in chapter 2, we move from application back to exposition, or from modern context back to ancient text. You say, don't we do both of those every week when we preach the Bible? And the answer is yes, in a sense we do. But we have to remember that when we're preaching Hebrews, we're already preaching something like a sermon. That's what I think Hebrews is. More than likely, it's it's a series of sermons woven together into a letter. All the way across Hebrews, this New Testament author is citing the Old Testament, then he's offering his inspired exposition of it, and then bringing it home to application, particularly in the in the piercing warning passages that we see that work through this letter. And in verses six to eight, we see an Old Testament quotation. It comes from Psalm eight, verses four to six. Indeed, we heard the entire psalm just read for us moments ago. And at 
the point of the first several verses of our text here is to make the point that when God created the world, he designed it to be overseen, to be ruled by proxy. God's plan for the earth involved sharing his royal dominion with others. And according to verse 5, those others do not include angels. Look with, once more with me at chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Okay? If it's not to angels, then who's going to have dominion over the earth? Well, Psalm 8 tells us. The author quotes it in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, this is wild, because if if you were to ask the question, to whom, precisely, did God put everything in subjection under his feet, and you were to answer human beings generally, you would be absolutely correct. That's exactly what these verses say. On the other hand, if we were to ask the question, to whom did God put everything in subjection under his feet, and you were to answer the true Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ in particular, you would be correct as well. There's a sense in which verses 6 to 8 fit the first Adam and his progeny. That would be us, like a, like a glove. At the same time, there's also a sense in which verses 6 to 8 fit the last Adam, Jesus, like a glove. And if we were to ask, well, who does the author of Hebrews see here in these verses? The first Adam or the last Adam? My sense is he would say, yes. They're both here. Based on his direct quotation of Psalm 8, verses 6 to 8, he clearly sees anthropology, what the Bible says about us, human beings. But based on his language in verse 9, he clearly sees Christology, what the Bible says about Christ, Jesus. And here's where the passage counsels. Why is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, such good news for a counselee, for you and for me in the midst of our suffering and sin? It's good news because on the one hand, it just names the world. It gets the problem right. It puts a finger on the major malfunction we see all around us. Verse 8 contains a sentence that I think we can simply write over every ounce of suffering and every appearance of sin wherever we look. And here's the sentence in the back half of verse 8. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Ain't that the truth? Whether the suffering of cancer or Hurricane Katrina, whether the sinning of domestic abuse or of national disasters or dictators or despots. Verse 8 offers us an explanation for the kaleidoscope of pain that we see and experience around us every day. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, and that yet is hopeful. Now, this passage is good news for a counselee, not merely because it names the world, leveling with us and telling us the bad news about the results of our sin and rebellion. But this passage also speaks of the fact that God doesn't just observe the conditions of this fallen world, but he actually condescends to enter into the conditions of this fallen world. 
in the person of his son. Look with me at verse 8 into verse 9. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we're kind of moving into point two, but let's just pause here and and consider this. When we offer the gospel as the comprehensive rescue for the care and the cure of the human soul, we're starting with a point of identification, of connection, of solidarity. And the reason why we can connect and find a point of reference with those in need is because that is precisely what Christ has done for us in our need. John 3.17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when we step into the world of biblical counseling, we don't counsel a theory. We counsel a person prepared to stand in solidarity with sufferers and sinners. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, number one, because he offers us the solidarity of his subjection. He who, to whom everything was to be in subjection became subject to this world. Now we're going to have to turn to the next paragraph and see how this subjection works itself out. So the second reason that we counsel Christ and that Jesus is the wonderful counselor is that he offers us the solidarity of his sufferings. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he offers us the solidarity of his sufferings. Here's why this is important. If Jesus had simply been sent by his Father into this world to live within the confines of our weaknesses and limitations, a little lower than the angels, and that were all, we'd still be impressed. That would be impressive enough. It would have been an obvious expression of solidarity with us. But Hebrews 2, 10 to 13, goes further. Because in Christ, the second person of the Trinity didn't just come to earth to take on our flesh and then live like a celebrity, like an untouchable royal far above the daily fray of our, ministry, of our misery and misfortune. Now, the Bible tells us that in Isaiah 53, 3, the Lord knew what it was to be despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So when God became incarnate, he didn't come to live a charmed, bulletproof life. Instead, he came to stand in solidarity with us, and that means the solidarity of our sufferings. Would you look with me at verses 10 to 13? Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You see what this verse offers us in the counseling room? Live long enough and you will suffer. That much is certain. 
And these verses furnish us with an absolute goldmine in, in caring for others. One of my favorite pastors, uh, from man from Nashville, Tennessee, Ray Ortland, describes three sorts of suffering that befall us in this world. He speaks of deserved suffering, innocent suffering, and righteous suffering. Deserved suffering, he says, can be filed under Numbers 32.23 that cautions us, be sure your sin will find you out. In other words, sometimes our sinning has invited suffering into our lives. We've made our bed, and now we're lying with the consequences. But I'll tell you what, if we know Jesus, when we encounter someone in the midst even of deserved suffering, it still ought to call forth compassion out of our hearts to them. In fact, it's, it's particularly pathetic, and I don't mean that in the everyday sense. I mean that in the classical sense, not in the condescending sense, as in full of pathos. This is a unique kind of suffering, the suffering that comes from sinning. But then there's a second type of suffering, and it's, it's innocent suffering. With innocent suffering, Ortland explains it this way. He says, we don't sin, we haven't done anything wrong, and we still suffer. A natural disaster brings innocent suffering. Racial prejudice brings innocent, uh, innocent suffering. I would add domestic violence brings innocent suffering. And then there's, there's righteous suffering. Righteous suffering can be summed up in Paul's words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's holy suffering. It's the best sort of suffering, but it's suffering all, all the same. So here, here's the point. In this world, there are all manner, there are all forms of suffering. And our Lord Jesus doesn't just offer us the solidarity of his subjection. The Lord Jesus offers us the solidarity of his suffering. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, that's Jesus, through suffering. Verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then in verses 12 and 13, the author furnishes three lines of evidence from the Old Testament. The first is from Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. The second, uh, by source, is a little bit more difficult to discern. It says in 13, verse 13, simply, I will put my trust in him. That could be any number of psalms, I think. Then the final quote is much more clear to ascertain. It comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Each of these Old Testament texts demonstrates the Messiah's willingness to stand alongside those who suffer. Or as commentator William Lane put it, the quotations in verses 12 and 13 illustrate that Jesus does not blush to identify himself with the people of God. And what does that mean in the context of counseling? Well, it means a great deal. When we point people toward Jesus, we're pointing them toward someone who gets them. Not just a savior, but a suffering savior. When we counsel those who are suffering, uh, biblical counselor Bob Kellerman speaks of the importance of being willing to crawl inside the casket with another person. That's what Jesus does. Now, those are important instructions for us as we minister to others for sure. 
It's just that there really does come a point when the sufferings, when I'm thinking about the sufferings of another person where I can actually still say with integrity, I've been there. I know exactly what you're experiencing. I don't. There comes a point when I tap out, and and you do too, even as we identify with each other's sufferings. None of us can do that with perfect integrity. Ah, but you know who can? The one who, according to verse 10, was made perfect through suffering. It was Michael Kelly Blanchard in his song, In From the Cold, who once wrote, Maybe I'm crazy, but give me the one who began with a baby as a baby without a home. I'm looking for a God who's been there and back, walking this sod with a cross on his back. One who's real when it comes to the soul, who knows what it's like to come in from the cold. Amen. Jesus knows what it's like. See, we we don't counsel a theory in this church. counsel a person. A person prepared to stand in solidarity with sufferers and sinners. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. First, because he offers us the solidarity of his subjection, yes. But he goes further. He offers us the solidarity of his sufferings. One final point today. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he offers us the solidarity of his salvation. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he offers us the solidarity of his salvation. I've saved the richest, most glorious paragraph for last, and we're, we're getting close to out of time because I told you I'd like to close with some applications with reference to the Counseling Center. So let's at least read these five remarkable verses. I'll limit myself to kind of one general observation, and then we'll move to some broader application. Uh, look with me at chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, there's so much glory here. But I think I can gather up what I want to say with one observation, and it's this. Jesus didn't just stand in solidarity with sufferers. Jesus stands in the place of sinners. Isn't this what we need? Puritan Thomas Watson once said, put your sufferings and your sins in the balance and see which weighs heaviest. My biggest issue in the final analysis isn't that I'm a victim. It's that I'm a perpetrator. Where does suffering come from anyway? If we know the Bible story, we know where it comes from. It comes from sinning. And I don't mean that to undercut anything we just said in the last point about innocent suffering or righteous suffering. There is such a thing as both of those. But the point is that underneath it all, behind it all, before it all, Before suffering itself ever came onto the world stage, guess what there was? 
there was sinning. In the Garden of Eden, suffering came as a result of sinning. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8, 20, and 21 that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Translation, ever since sin entered into the created order, God has rigged this world so that it won't work properly so that we will cry out to him for mercy, for help, and for hope. And from what do we ultimately need rescue? Well, not from our sufferings, but from our sins. Notice that across these final verses in our sermon text, Jesus is not just in the business of alleviating sufferers, although he is. He's in the business of delivering sinners. Verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And now verse 17, he therefore had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that's why the gospel is and will always be the most profound counseling on the planet. Because it goes deeper. It goes deeper than all the other theories. It goes deeper to what we really need with reference to our problems before a holy God. We need propitiation for the sins of the people. This is one of four times that this word appears in the New Testament. And it couldn't be any more central to our greatest need. A propitiation is a wrath-bearing sacrifice. To be propitious towards someone is to be favorable toward them. To have a disposition of being for a person. But we know that in our sins, God is not propitious toward us. He's not favorable toward us because he's a good judge. He is angry and wrathful over our rebellion against him. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't love us because we're lovely. Clearly not. He loves us because he is love. And that's the gospel. That's what makes our counseling utterly otherworldly and so very, very wonderful. We have somewhere to go when people suffer. And we have the only place to go when people sin. You see, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he offers us also the solidarity of his salvation. We don't counsel a theory in this church. We counsel a person. Prepared to stand in solidarity with sufferers and sinners. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he offers us the solidarity of his subjection, solidarity of his sufferings, and the solidarity of his salvation. So by God's grace and for God's glory, about four months from now, we will see the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling established. It almost takes my breath away to say it. The date for which we're aiming is Sunday, October 6th. Now, it won't be a general hard launch out into our West Tonka community, but rather a particular, peculiar, soft launch here among our brothers and sisters in this local fellowship. 
All systems will be up and running, but we'd like some time to test drive this ministry, if you'd allow us, before we open it up to the broader community that surrounds us. By God's mercy, we'll launch in October with three certified counselors and then uh, the counseling cohort that is working toward more men and women toward uh, certification. And then the committee that, again, is chipping away at systems and policies and procedures and legal protection and so on. And finally, our, our elders are the ones who are ultimately responsible for the oversight and the execution of this ministry. So you might be wondering, if you're not one of those people, how can you be involved? I've got three exhortations for you as we close. Three exhortations of how you might have a role in the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling. And it is related, really, to the gray insert that you have. You might just take a look. This is a beautifully done insert here that please put on your fridge or stick in the flyleaf of your Bible. It's interesting that we're dovetailing with prayer requests. I didn't know that this particular insert was going to read the way it did. And so we have uh, singing the same song here, I think. Here's the first exhortation. Uh, it's not complicated. All of these are within your reach and perhaps are things that you're already engaged in. Number one, what can you do? You can pray. You can pray. Pray for the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling. Pray for us. Pray for the counselors that our convictions and character and ministry competencies would be marked by the fragrance of Christ and filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Pray for the counselors. Pray for the committee. Pray for the group of men and women that have a lot on their plate as they are trying to figure out everything else other than the counseling. From big picture issues like legal protection to small picture details like dedicating and furnishing a room for counseling on the lower level of our building. Pray for the committee. Pray also for our elders. Uh, The HCBC is a ministry of Mount Evangelical Free Church, And as such, that means our elders are responsible for this thing, whether it sinks or swims. The elders are responsible for this. Jesus gets the glory if we're successful, but the elders pick up the pieces if we're not. So please pray, pray, pray for our elders. Lastly, especially pray for Pastor Aaron, because the matter of fact is there is only one person other than Jesus who is the common denominator in each of those groups. He serves as a counselor, a committee member, and an elder. And at the end of the day, he'll be the director of the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling. So if there's one person that stands in need of our prayer and the grace of Christ more than any other, I think it's fair to say it's Aaron. So pray for our brother. So pray for this ministry. Number two, come. Don't just pray. Come. That is, let us help. Let us help. If you find yourself living east of Eden, as we all do, and this journey is just becoming overwhelming for you, and you're looking for someone to walk with, to minister to you in your suffering or in your grief, your confusion, your depression, your anxiety, your addiction, your anger, your marriage, your parenting, we're here for you. We're ready, and we want to help. Over the years, you've probably heard me likely count, uh, count uh, rather quote a counselor by the name of David Paulison. If you've ever heard me say, we want to restore Christ to counseling and counseling to the church, that's Paulison. You ever heard me give the illustration of the Bible as a grand piano? That's Paulison. Well, some of you may be aware this, this dear man went to be with our Lord this past Friday morning. 
at the age of 69, succumbing to a, a battle with pancreatic cancer. When it's all said and done, it's possible that there may be no more strategic force behind our vision for the counseling center than David Pallison. Pallison's the one who first took the seeds of biblical counseling and planted them deep down into the soil of my soul. He made biblical counseling, and he does it for all the pastors I know of in the area. It makes biblical counseling sound at once attractive and admirable and accessible. For example, Pallison once defined counseling this way. He said, all counseling means is having wise, candid, fruitful conversations about things that really matter. Doesn't that just take the pressure off? All counseling is is having wise, candid, fruitful conversations about things that really matter. He went on to say, that is biblical counseling. That's the charge of being a Christian. We all need it. We all need to do it. The only alternative is to have foolish, evasive, barren conversations. So don't go and have those in Fellowship Hall today. Don't be foolish and evasive or barren. Somebody says, how are you doing? Don't say, fine. Tell them how you're doing. Tell them how you're really doing. Well, Pallison's right. I praise God for David Pallison. You know, one week ago, I found myself absolutely hitting the wall in one, one particular area of home life. I've been wrestling with an issue that had become increasingly unmanageable for me on my own, and that's when it occurred to me, the Lord hasn't designed me to carry this on my own. So I walked next door to see my friend Guy. And over an hour and a half later, the pastor became the counselee and the doctor became the counselor as two neighbors met together. And it was glorious. It was so helpful to me. Like Pallison says, it was wise, candid, fruitful conversations about things that really matter. We all need it. We all need to do it. So the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling isn't just a ministry for this or from this fellowship. It's a ministry for this fellowship, to this fellowship. So the second exhortation is to come. Finally, final exhortation, contribute. Contribute. There are so very many ways you can contribute. You might be interested in helping us to clean out and furnish and decorate our counseling room downstairs. You might be able to assist in adding specific books or other resources to our library. We have a laundry list of books we're interested in. You might want to help us furnish that library. You might be curious to see what biblical counseling looks like, and you want to function maybe like a counseling advocate where you could sit in the room and watch biblical counseling as it's happening and observe it and learn about it. Perhaps God's already given you gifts of shepherding or teaching or wisdom, and you might want to explore formal training to become a certified biblical counselor and serve in our ministry. You might have a neighbor that down the road you're going to recommend and possibly refer to our counseling center. The possibilities of contributing are as wide as your imagination. So how can you be involved in the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling? Well, you can pray, you can come, and you can contribute. We don't counsel a theory in this church. We counsel a person, a person prepared to stand in solidarity with sufferers and sinners. We have a lot to look forward to. Right now, let's pray.